Amen. Amen. <laughs> His goodness is running after me. Oh, man. What a blessing it is to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This morning, we're going to be in John chapter 20. And uh, if you have your scripture and want to open up to that, we'll read some verses here there in just a moment. But you know, a, a good mystery writer will never want for an audience. And uh, the reason I say that is that's because people love mysteries. I mean, we enjoy talking about, you know, putting, taking the, the seemingly um, scattered pieces of a puzzle and, and kind of trying to put those pieces together in order to make sense of something. And there's a, there's a sense in which we must approach some of the biblical accounts of the resurrection um, as much like we would a mystery. I mean, we have, there, there's four written testimonies here of, of what happened, and, and on the surface, uh, the stories, each one give us pieces of, of what happened. And so we have to work to put all the pieces together if we want to understand the events of that Easter morning, of what happened. Now, there are some questions we have to answer in the account of, of uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, when we read about Mary Magdalene and her encounter with Jesus, I mean, my question was, what happened to all the other women? Uh, there, was, there was more than one there, and all the accounts tell us that a group of women went to the tomb that morning. But here's how uh, many theological students handle the chronology, the timeline, if you will, of that first Easter morning. Mary and the other ladies, they went to the tomb to, to care for the, the body, the dead body of Jesus, okay? They saw the empty tomb. Mary immediately left to report this tragic desecration to the disciples, the other women stayed and moved in closer to the tomb and they saw the angels and they, they heard their grand announcement. They went home, but they didn't tell anyone because they were afraid. They were fearful. Meanwhile, Mary told Peter and John about the empty tomb and they went running to the tomb. But Mary also headed back to the tomb. But she fell kind of behind the disciples, and Peter and John, they arrived, and they, they saw that the tomb was empty, and they, they looked at the evidence, and they believed that Jesus had risen, and they rushed back home. So then Mary arrives at the tomb as, as Peter and John were leaving, and she remained and began to grieve over the circumstances of that day. And that's where our account picks up the story See, a careful look at Mary's experience at the empty tomb can give us further information, but it can also give us some insights for our daily living. I want to read in John chapter 20, I want to read uh, verses 11 uh, through 18, and uh, if you'll follow along in, in your scripture, John 20, verse 11, uh, down through 18, and it says this, it says, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting 
One at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Loving Father, we thank you for your word and I thank you, Father, for the the truth of your word. And I ask even now that you would just impress upon our hearts, Holy Spirit, Uh, the desire that you have for each one of us. And I pray, Father, that you would guide us into a deeper relationship with you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, I I ask that you would be, uh, that you would magnify the Son, and, and, and Father, that you would be glorified in that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the things I want to impress upon you today is that God chooses to use unexpected people. God chooses to use unexpected people. I mean, this is the first appearance that we have of Jesus after his resurrection. He's still by the tomb. He's still there in proximity But this is the first appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Now, if you and I were planning things, who would you have appeared to first? I mean, think about it. The disciples? Maybe Peter? Maybe Pilate? What about your mom? I'm back, mom. I mean, maybe you would have made a public appearance to the crowds, to the masses. But that's not what happens. The first person to see and talk to Jesus is Mary of Magdala. We call her Magdalene because she's from there. But she is a very unlikely choice. Now, we can speculate on why she was the first person. Was it because she loved him more than others? Was it because she was in the right place at the right time? We don't know. What we do know is that God has a habit of using people no one else would have used. 
I mean, just think about this with me for just a moment. Moses was the reluctant service who didn't speak well. He was the one who, who God chose. Amos, the shepherd, also was unlikely. <laughs> Jonah, the man who hated the Ninevites, was sent to as a missionary to Nineveh. The least likely person that we would probably pick. David, the shepherd boy, became the king of Israel. Saul, who was chosen to be the first king, even though he was hiding so he wouldn't get picked. Then you have the low-income family. Mary and Joseph were chosen to be the parents for Jesus. You have a ragtag group of misfits were selected to be the disciples. And then you have this fierce antagonist of the gospel, Paul. He was tapped to be the chief theologian. And he was so antagonistic toward the gospel at the beginning. But folks, these are not exceptions. This is the way God usually works. I mean, listen, listen to Paul's words out of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and following. He writes this, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are are so that no man may boast before God but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord Amen. three or four lessons I'd like to share with you this morning uh, out of this passage, um, the first lesson would be this, that God could use you in ways you would not expect. God can use you in ways that you may not expect. In fact, God is using you in ways you don't expect or even realize. I mean, God is using us to change the course of history in simple and very essential ways. God could use that person that you have written off in an unexpected way as well. God specializes in taking the cast-offs and, and, and working through them. But if God doesn't write anyone off, then neither should we. I mean, God is full of surprises. He really is. I, I think of it this way, God is wild. God is wild. I mean, I've been on some crazy roller coasters, I've been on some crazy rides, but God is wild. I mean, when you sign on with Him, you're signing on for the ride of your life. I guarantee it. It is something that I have never regretted with signing on with God. He is full of surprises. And since God is doing things with your life, we should live with humility. 
We should live with humility. What happens in our life that has eternal significance is not because of what we do. It's not what we do. It's because of what God is doing through us. And our boasting should be not in our significance, but in His grace. That He would choose to use us in this way. That's the first lesson. God could use you in ways you may not expect, you would not expect. The second one is this, is that most anxiety in our lives is foolish. Most anxiety in our life is foolish. We read that Mary was at the tomb crying. She was distraught because the body of Jesus was not there. It wasn't where they put him. And we might even say she was beside herself. She looks in the tomb and she saw two angels. And the angels ask her, why are you crying? And she responds that she's crying because the body of Jesus is missing. Now we can't help wondering why the presence of angels didn't tip her off just a little bit. To the fact that Jesus had risen and was no longer there. But listen, that's the way life is Sometimes we miss the obvious because we're so wrapped up in our own misery. It's all about us, and we're wrapped up in our own mystery, excuse me, misery, and, and we, we don't get it. We, we, we miss the obvious that is laying right in front of us, that the thing that is, is right there in front of us, we miss it because we're wrapped up in our own misery. We can't see it. Now, we're not told whether Jesus comes up behind her at this point or if he was standing there all along. But note the irony here. Mary is torn apart at the thought that the grave and the corpse of Jesus has been desecrated and she is distressed and brokenhearted because Jesus' body is missing and she doesn't know where to find it. She's she's wrapped up in this. And the whole time, Jesus is standing behind her. He's watching this happening. He's standing behind her. And our situation happens just like this situation many times. Here's why. Because we jump to needless conclusions. We jump to needless conclusions all the time. We face a difficult circumstance. And immediately we think that everything is lost. I'm done. We're through. We despair when we should simply regroup. I mean, we conclude that something abnormal on an x-ray is cancer, and we begin to grieve our death, when in truth, it's just something abnormal on the x-ray. We conclude that maybe the hurtful words from someone else were intentional, Rather than maybe they were just an unwilling offense. Maybe we took it wrong. We, can, we believe a, a declined invitation means that someone doesn't like us. We believe inclement weather means a ruined vacation rather than maybe a different experience than we had anticipated. See, we make huge leaps in logic and assume the worst. And then we feel alone and defeated and feel like God has deserted us 
while the whole time Jesus is standing there with us. We don't have eyes to see. We don't have ears to hear. See, maybe, maybe you're upset today, this week, because you're assuming that certain things are true. Maybe you've drawn inaccurate conclusions that have resulted in a shattered friendship. Maybe some sleepless nights. Maybe tears. You just can't stop crying. Or maybe a deep depression. It's normal to jump to conclusions, but I want to tell you this morning, it is never profitable. Know what you know. Know the facts. Look at what you know and try not to draw quick conclusions. If somebody says something, maybe they're having a bad day. It's not a reflection on you. Jesus is still standing there with you. There's no need to go talk about it and try and stir things up. The the point is, is Jesus is with us always. He said, I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. If any promise of his is true, that one is true. I will never leave you. And as you look at the facts, don't forget the fact that the Lord Jesus stands with you. He promised that and he told us also, he said greater, um, that the one who lives in us is greater than the one who lives in the world. And he promises that nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from his love. Now, does that change your perspective? Do those facts make a difference to you? Because they should. Did it make a difference to Mary that Jesus was standing there? Sure it did. But not until she realized it. She was having a conversation with with, with the the angels and, 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 and Jesus was there the whole time. But then once she realized it, that leads us to our third lesson. Joy increases when we see Jesus more clearly. (laughs) I mean, Mary was in the presence of Jesus, but did not experience joy. She didn't experience joy because she didn't see him. Even when Mary was talking directly to him. She did not know joy at first because she did not recognize Jesus. Now we could say, well, how could that be? How could she look at him and not see him? (laughs) Okay, have you ever been in a mall or maybe in a store and walked right by someone you knew? We all have. We saw them, but we didn't see them because we were either pre, too preoccupied with what was on our mind and what we were doing, or we were looking beyond them to something else, or we just didn't expect to see them there. This could have been Mary's experience. It could have been that for some reason God kept her from recognizing Christ immediately. You remember on the road to Emmaus? Jesus walked with two travelers for a very long time. They stopped at home for dinner. 
Jesus sat and ate with them. But they didn't recognize him until their eyes were opened. Now we don't know why Mary didn't recognize him. We just know that she didn't. She didn't recognize him until until Jesus spoke her name. Oh, what a great moment that must have been. I bet she was filled with joy then when Jesus said her name, Mary, Mary. What a great moment that will be when we hear the Master say our name. Look, Mary's joy did not come until she saw Jesus clearly. She was in his presence, but still miserable. Folks, we can be in Jesus' presence and still be miserable. Mary was in his presence and was still miserable. She looked right at him and continued to cry. But when she saw him clearly, the clouds gave way to the warmth of joy. And the same thing is true for us. When we see Jesus clearly, our joy returns. But here's part of the problem. We look for joy in the wrong places. I mean, we look, we look at worldly stuff. We think that, you know, if, if I could just have this thing, if I could just have this house, if I could just live in this place, if I could just have this job, then, then, then I will have joy. And you're looking for all this other stuff to fill that longing for joy. We look at other people for joy. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend, maybe an entertainer or someone else. We look for favorable circumstances. Oh man, you know, getting a promotion or winning the lottery, if you play the lottery, I don't know. Or maybe it's as simple as saying, you know what, if the sun is shining outside, it's a good day. We feel joy in that. Oh man, the sunshine is out, it's, it's beautiful. And these things might make life more pleasant. But their joy, if you could call it joy, is superficial and very temporary. Listen, I'm about to plow really close to the corn now, okay? So if you get uncomfortable, know that it's supposed to be. We can stand right in front of Jesus in church, but can miss the joy. We can be right in front of him in church and miss the joy because we look past him. We look for joy from the structure, not relationship. We find joy if we know what the order of service is, if we know what the order that we're going to worship in, if we sing the right songs, if we do this, if we do that. And we're looking at the structure rather than the relationship, but we look past him. We don't find the joy in church because we're preoccupied, because our focus is not on Jesus. It's on us. And we figure that if we work harder, if we apply the right principles, if, if we use the right technique, that somehow we can bring about this happiness and this joy. See, we focus on techniques to find joy rather than focusing on the one who is joy. 
Folks, this, this is the biggest danger to much of contemporary Christianity. The emphasis often becomes very self-centered. If we worship the right way, if we give the right amount, if we engage in the right behaviors, if we have the right experience, then we can find joy. But the truth, however, is that joy is not found in us. It is found in Him. Our joy is in Him. Joy is not something we produce. It is something that accompanies our relationship with the Lord. See, our new life is the life that He gives us. And so our goal is the need to know Him better. The better we know him, the more joy we will have. Because joy is found in him and not in us. We should pray not to get through our prayer list, but to cultivate a relationship with him. A give and take, a a relationship with our Lord. And we read his word, not to master a body of information, but so that we can know Whatever we can know about him. We obey him not to court his favor. But to do what is pleasing to him. And folks in times of crisis. We must learn to turn to his perfect wisdom and strength. This is where joy is found. It is found in him. Finally, our fourth lesson here is those who see clearly are to tell freely. Jesus tells Mary, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging and start spreading the good news. I mean, Mary must have been holding on to Jesus for dear life. I mean, she was not going to let him go and be out of her sight again. And, and, and this is admirable. But Jesus wants her to know that she will see him again. I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm going to be around for the next 40 days. But before that happens, there's work to be done. Again, we're just like Mary. We claim Christ as our Savior. And so we join a church. We change many of our activities to church-related pursuits, not altogether bad, and we like to huddle, we like to huddle together as much as possible. And the fellowship that we receive is unlike anything we've ever known. We write our own music, we publish our own phone book, we vow to to patronize or, or do business with those we like to huddle with. We develop our own language. We form political lobbying forces. We look with suspicion over the wall that we have built at everyone outside the wall. And let me ask you, what are we doing? We're clinging. We're clinging. And that's what Jesus told Mary. Stop clinging to me. Go and tell others. Jesus makes that same point to us. Stop clinging, go and tell others. We have an eternity, we have an all of eternity to be in this exclusive fellowship. 
Don't get me wrong, we need times of fellowship together. We draw encouragement from that. We need each other. But we must not isolate. We have to be around. We have to, be, we have to get outside the walls. We have to guard against the tendency to hold on so tight that we never leave the safety of the group. I mean, we can enjoy the holy huddle so much that we keep others away. And rather than share the gospel with them, which is what we should be doing, is sharing the gospel and inviting them in. I think this is big because stop clinging and go tell others. Go and share. As I wrap this up and and just bring it in here for a landing, we can and should learn from Mary. In fact, I just want to draw a couple of conclusions here about her experience at the tomb. First, I would say this. Are you unwilling to try something because you feel like you can't do it? Does your natural inability hold you back? I mean, I've heard people tell me this quite often. Evangelism isn't my spiritual gift. No, but we're all supposed to evangelize. Let me remind you, God specializes in using people who are unqualified. (laughs) I still shake my head in amazement when I think of the young kid who used to dread getting up in front of people to say two lines that his parents had drilled into him. And the reason that I dreaded it was because when I got up in front of him, I forgot those two lines. And I would have passed out with anxiety if I knew where God was going to take me. If he showed me years ago what I would be doing today, it would have freaked me out. But God is full of surprises. And he will surprise you with what he can do through you. Secondly, are you worrying or fretting about things needlessly? Are you jumping to conclusions? Is your mind just on overtime? Do you have a strained relationship with someone because you're interpreting what they said or what what they did? Are you despairing because you're looking beyond the present? Are you losing sleep for no reason? (laughs) Have you forgotten who stands by your side? None other than the Lord Jesus. You know, I'm going I'm to invite our, our worship team to come back up here. And uh, they're going to lead us in a, a couple of songs of response. But I want, if you would, just, just take a moment and just bow your head with me. I want to ask a few questions. Where are you looking for joy? Are you looking to your own ability? Are you dwelling on yourself? Or are you abiding in the Savior? Are you trusting in methods? Or are you trusting in a person? See, in those times of crisis, we have to stop looking at the situation and abide in the one who holds all the situations in his hands. 
This year, make it your goal to see him more clearly. And one last question or two here. Are you a Christian snob? Are you so wrapped up in the the holy huddle that you push people away rather than draw them close? Do you speak in the language of the people or are you talking in some type of holy code? Do you reach out to those who are outside of Christ or are you just indifferent to them? We talk to people all the time. Do you push away those who aren't part of your group or are you looking to build a bridge? Are you looking to show and share your faith? Are you just trying to keep others from crashing your party? You see, we come full circle. Life is filled with intriguing mysteries. But there is no mystery about this. No one will ever get to heaven until they meet Jesus. And he asks you, And he asks me to handle the introductions. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we see revival all over this land. I pray, Father, that you would bring a great repentance on your church.